Well, good afternoon, everyone. Great to see you. Um, are you all well? Good. I'm glad to hear that. So we are not carrying on with our Philippian series today. We're going to take a, a break from it because we're diving into um, a week that leads us to the cross of Christ on Friday, on Good Friday, and then Resurrection Sunday, obviously next week. And uh, it's really, this is such a key part, as we'll see a bit later on, that we, uh, in, our, in our walk with God, a reminder each year as we go by that we, we need to be paying some attention to this. In the prayer meeting this morning, before the service, the first service started, Pascal prayed this prayer. He said, Lord, I pray that people that know you would seek you even more. And that is my prayer that what comes out of this preach this morning is that those that love Jesus and are His already would love Him more and seek Him even more and surrender even more to Him. And then obviously for those that are on a spiritual journey, that this would be a step that reveals to you who Jesus is. And so the title of my preach this morning is Coronation, Contradiction, and Cries of Crucify. And um, this is... Um, this is Today is Palm Sunday. That's what it's known in the church calendar. I don't suppose any of you have got a church calendar up in your house. I don't have one either, so I would understand. But it's the day where um, I think the kids are even doing it upstairs. You would, uh, they would we, you know, you'd cut out palm branches and you'd bring them to church and you'd wave them all at each other or something like this. Kids would make, make little palm trees, palm branches upstairs and wave them around. And you'll come to see why um, it's part of the triumphal entry of Christ coming into Jerusalem. And it's the triumphal entry that kicks us off on this, what's called the Passion Week. And it's called the Passion Week not just because we're passionate about it, but because in Acts 1 verse 3 it says this. It says, Jesus showed himself alive um, after his suffering, after his, the word there, suffering is pain. I thought I had the wrong reference there for a second. So it was alive after his suffering, his, and the Greek word is pasho, which is passion by many infallible proofs. And so after his passion, after his suffering, which this week is, he showed himself alive. And that's what we're going to spend this week going on. I didn't grow up in a religious family. My dad had um, divorced his first wife and uh, had married my mom. And so he was excommunicated from the Catholic church he was a part of. And so we just didn't go to church. And a bit later on, as I was a young teen, uh, my, dad, my mom and dad would drop us off um, at Sunday school. I don't know what they did on Sunday mornings while we were at Sunday school. I'm guessing it was a romantic whatever going on there. I, some time away from these boisterous boys. And so they would drop us off at Sunday school and they would give me some tithe money so that I could tithe. I didn't know what a tithe was. I didn't understand why I would be giving any money I had to Jesus. He seemed to have enough money already. And so we decided we would keep our tithe money and we would go across the street to checkers, which is like our spinnies, and go buy some sweets with our tithe money. So I grew up as a little heathen, I can tell you that. I had, I had no understanding of uh, ecclesiastical calendars and Palm Sundays and Morty Tuesdays or any of that stuff. And even when I came into um, faith in Christ and I joined a church, it wasn't a high order church. I don't think the pastor of that church knew any more about the, the, the church calendar than I knew at the time. And so it just wasn't a big part of my life. But, um, but I love Jesus. When I met him, I fell in love with him. I, I thought he was just, as I've often said before, he was the bee's knees. He was the business. Do you know what I mean? He was, Jesus had, um, he was my hero in every single way. 
And, um, and so loving him was not hard for me, and believing I was loved by him was not difficult for me. And, I, and, and what was important to me was the word of God and what is revealed in his word to us about who he is and about who we are and how we ought to respond to him. And so my um, kind of faith has grown up around this idea that what the Bible makes much of, we should make much of. So if it's a big deal in the Bible, then it should be a big deal for us. If it's not a big deal in the Bible, then it's not a big deal for us. And one of the things that we see in Scripture is that um, this triumphal entry that kicks off this Passion Week is recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And um, there are many stories that are recorded, some in one of them, and two of them, maybe three of them. There are a limited number of moments in Jesus' life that are recorded in all four, and this is one of them which highlights the importance. Add to that the fact that all of those synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a third of the, of the Gospel devoted to this last week of Jesus' life. Isn't that amazing? A whole one-third is devoted to seven days out of his three years of ministry. And the Gospel of John, half of the Gospel is devoted to this time. And so, man, there's something important about this. This is a big deal. We need to be paying attention to it. And each year as we come to this moment... I think it's probably the most important moment in our church calendar that we, um, we orientate ourselves around what God is doing, what He's wanting to speak to us about in this week. And so uh, we could have turned to any other passages in Mark 21, or I mean Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, but we're going to go to John chapter 12. Maybe you can read the same story in the other Gospels when you get home. I bet you won't, but you could. But we're going to go to Luke 12, verse 12. We're going to read from there, okay? So Luke 12, John. Why did I say Luke? John 12. Stay, keep, uh, keep focused here. John 12, verse 12 to 18. It says here, The next day, and we'll come back in a moment to what happened the day before. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, hence Palm Sunday, and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Babe, can I have your order? And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, thank you, um, just as it is written. Excuse me. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things um, had been written about him and had to be done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So that's what we said the next day. What had happened before was that the crowd had come to see Lazarus who had been raised from the dead. Um, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard what he had done, that he had done this sign. <clears throat> Now, Bible historians tell us that Jerusalem, because this was the Passover festival that was taking place at this time, and that Jerusalem would swell to three times its normal population over that time. In fact, the villages around would be filled up with people that were coming to the city to celebrate the Passover, which, um, as I'll unpack in a little bit, is, is one of the most significant moments in Jewish history. And uh, one historian um, picked up a reference from AD 40 that said that 260,000 lambs were slain in Jerusalem over Passover to celebrate the Passover. And they, he says based on one lamb per 10 people, that 
could mean that more than two million people were gathered in Jerusalem at this time. Whatever the exact number was, and, and it's hard to tell exactly what it is, 10 years earlier in AD 30, it was a massive number of people that were crammed into Jerusalem. And God had drawn them together for this most monumental moment in human history. And what we're going to see is that the triumphal entry, Christ riding into Jerusalem and being hailed as a king, was a necessary starting point. So much about the Gospels is that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies that were made about him. Zechariah had promised, or sorry, had prophesied about the Savior coming, riding on a donkey 500 years before Jesus was, was born. One of the things I love doing is to go back and see the prophecies that were made, especially the ones that Jesus could have nothing to do in fulfilling as a human being, and see how many of them were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And this is one of the proofs that God offers us that Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ who came 2,000 years ago is the Messiah that was prophesied ahead of time. But not only because of that um, is the triumphal entry um, absolutely essential to this week, but also because in human terms, this was the culmination or the high point of Jesus' popularity. And would set in motion a series of events that, would, that could lead to no other place except his murder. You might say, well, Rob, why do you say that? Let's turn back to John chapter 12. And um, I've spoken there about how it said, let me get to my part here, how it said in verse 12 that the next day, and so if we go back a few verses, we'll read what happened, what had happened the previous day. In uh, John 12, 9, it says, when the large crowd of Jews heard that Jesus was there, which is in Bethany, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now remember, Lazarus had been dead for a number of days. He would have been, his body would have begun to decay already. And then Jesus came and raised him from the dead. This was a miracle that had, that had blown the mind of the people around. And so they wanted to see, look, we heard he was dead. The reports had, been, had come out that he was dead. You know, people had, we were mourning for him. And now the reports have come that he's been raised from the dead. Let's go see what's going on. And then it says, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. <laughs> How sucky is that? The guy's just been raised from the dead and now they want to kill him again. It's like, it seems crazy. But they, the, their thinking was like they did a cost-benefit analysis and thought to themselves, you know what, if we kill Jesus now, it's a disaster. He's too popular. There's this, it's just, but we can kill Lazarus. And so this guy that's garnering all this attention and, and all this um, adulation, um, for Jesus, if we kill him, then we'll, we'll be able to put him out there and um, reduce the influence that Jesus is having. And you, this might seem like too much for you. Like, how could the chief priests, these religious leaders, do something like this? I remember years ago, somebody, a church leader in this country, coming to speak to me. He had been a, a leader of a big, a part of a leadership of a big um, group of churches in India. I'll leave all the names secret here in this thing. And um, he had encountered the Holy Spirit while he was a part of this denomination and had gone to the leaders. He was an influential part of the leadership group and said, I'm leaving. I want to go do my own thing because this movement didn't allow any um, gifts of the Holy Spirit or anything like that. And he, this was, his testimony to me was that they intended to kill him and he actually had to flee the country. This church, the church leaders wanted to kill him because he was leaving the church because he'd received the Holy Spirit. He had to go hide in one of the other Middle Eastern countries for a year before he made his way across here and started a church here. These things happen because they're about power. And so 
If we look now at the end of that passage of Scripture, the verse I didn't read in John 12, verse 19, we see what the, um, the Pharisees say as John records it. It says in verse 19, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And so all of their attempts to sideline Jesus hadn't worked, and instead his popularity was growing. And there was, a, there was a tricky situation here the Pharisees were facing because they were the religious rulers of the day in a nation that was under Roman occupation. And so the Romans, what normally would happen is, and the law of Rome was that you had to worship Caesar as God, except they found these, these stubborn people called the Jews who just wouldn't do what they were told to do. And they would rather die, literally. They would rather all be wiped out than do that. And so this concession was made, okay, you stubborn, Stubborn, you stubborn people, you can, you can continue to have your own religion with your own religious leaders, but just keep it under control. And so the religious leaders of the day, they had been given the power by Rome to, to provide that kind of leadership. And it, with it came stature and authority and finances and influence and all of those things. But this, this peace treaty with them in Rome was brittle and it could be broken at any time. And as people began to move across from, um, from Judaism as their religion to faith in Jesus Christ. They were losing the followers, and therefore their influence would decrease. But also that peace treaty they made with Rome was vulnerable because this rebellious or this um, what's the atmosphere of rebellion was going to undermine what they were doing. And that's what was happening here, was that their position of power was being threatened. So as Jesus came into town, and as people began to hail him as king, they, they understood, okay, now cost benefit, it doesn't matter, we've got to kill this guy. And God had ordained it that way. He specifically sent Jesus. He knew ahead of time that this was going to cause the situation to take place where we couldn't come back from. So what happened on uh, Sunday, on Palm Sunday, was that inevitably going to lead to Good Friday and then by God's grace to Resurrection Sunday as well. And so the, the stage was set for the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world to be slain in space and time. And the atonement of sin, the, the payment for sin, the setting aside of sin, which God had ordained in time past, in eternity past, was now going to become historical for all to see. And God's timing in this is perfect. He, he, had, he had ordained that this would take place at the time that the Passover festival was being celebrated. And you guys will know if you've read your scriptures and, you, and you, what the Passover festival is. What happened was when Israel, hundreds of years before, had been in slavery um, to Egypt. Um, they'd gone into Egypt, obviously, with Joseph and all the tribes that gathered. They'd grown into this massive number and come under and become slaves of Egypt and cried out to God. And so God sent Moses to deliver them. Moses is a type of Christ or a, someone that, like a picture of Christ as he comes to deliver us. And, and God gave Moses his power to bring his judgment upon Egypt. And there was one judgment after the other until the final judgment, which was that the firstborn in the, all of Egypt were going to die. Every single firstborn child, every single firstborn animal would die. An angel of death would come over and strike them. But God made this one provision for the Israelites that if they would trust in him, they would slaughter a lamb and then take the, the blood of the lamb with a hyssop branch and mark the doorposts of their houses and then when the angel of death would come, he would pass over their house and they would remain alive. And th this, this was a picture 
of obviously pointing towards this sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, and of the deliverance that God would bring for us, that he would bring us from slavery to sin and to the God of this world and to bring us into freedom. Let my people go that they may worship me, is what he said. And so we see this is taking place now in the Jewish calendar, the 10th which was the, of this month, which was the, not April, the 10th of the Jewish calendar, which is on Monday, was the day that the sacrificial lamb was brought into the city. Something was made of it. It was actually, it was like, like, they, like everyone was there as the lamb was brought in. This was this sacrificial lamb that would be slaughtered on the 14th, which was on Friday, the day that Jesus was crucified. That's why some people even suggest that maybe um, the triumphal entry happened on the Sunday uh, sorry, on the Monday rather than the Sunday because Jesus was the sacrificial lamb. He was the fulfillment of all that this pointed to as God intended. So what does this mean for us? Let's dive into this triumphal entry and look at those three things that I've spoken about, the coronation, the contradiction, and the cries for crucifixion. So number one, the coronation. The palm branches that people collected um, we so often associate those things as a symbol of peace and of pleasantness. This is like a good thing. And so it, it's a little bit, uh, we, get, we get the wrong message when we think about people waving palm branches. We think they're just like streamers or something like that. But they actually symbolize something. And what they symbolized was Jewish nationalism. And the, they, ex they expressed the desire of the people for political freedom, for political deliverance. Remember I said the Romans were oppressing them. And these were not, the Romans were not um, like uh, benevolent dictators, as it were. They, they, they oppressed, they crushed the people. Um, when, if you rebelled against them, they came down with an incredibly heavy hand upon you, as would later happen with, um, with Israel and Jerusalem. In AD 70, a Roman commander, Titus, came through and completely destroyed Jerusalem, and completely destroyed the, the temple. And the Jewish historians reckon that at that point, one million people were killed by the Romans. One million Jewish people were killed then. And so this was not like a happy relationship. This was hard, and this was difficult, and the people wanted to be set free. And, um, and so they, uh, they, uh, these palm leaves were a symbol of this thing that, like, this is, we want to be free. That's what they were saying. They were also saying something with this declaration, Hosanna. And I don't know how many of you that weren't in the first meeting, my warning to you, because they always shout that out anyway. Who knows what Hosanna means? Anybody know what it means? There's prizes to be had here. No, there aren't any. No, Margaret? No. <laughs> so, remember a couple of weeks ago I told you that there's some words in the Scriptures that don't get translated. They get transliterated. So, a word like hallelujah actually means, it comes from two Hebrew words, which means to to praise the Lord. And so when we shout hallelujah, in your mind you're thinking, praise the Lord. So we sang that song, um, hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. It's praise the Lord, praise the one who set me free. Praise the Lord, death has lost its curse for me. That's what we're singing. When you shout amen out while I'm preaching, what you're saying is so be it. Like what he said, let it be. That I acknowledge the truth of that statement there. And so um, Hosanna is a similar kind of thing that the the, the New Testament that was written in the Greek, the English translation has taken the letters in the Greek and just used English letters, H-O-S-A-N-N-A, -N -N -A, to create this word, Hosanna. And if we were then to go and look at what the Greek word means, if you were to get a Bible dictionary and look up the word in the Greek, you'd find there was no word there because the Greeks were doing exactly what we're doing with the English word. They had just taken a Hebrew phrase and taken the letters in the Hebrew and used 
um, Greek letters to come up with the same word. And so we have a Hebrew word that we're declaring out. And the word is um, uh, Hoshana, Hoshiana, Hoshiana. It has two, two words, Hoshiana. And that phrase is found only in one place. Go to the next slide, please. There we go. In, uh, in Psalm 118, verse 25, and the meaning of it actually is, save me, please. Um, and so, I give you, a, you know, like when you go to one of those parties and there's a swimming pool at the party and everyone's having a good time and then there's that one guy at the party that always wants to throw somebody into the pool. You've, you've been to those before, eh? It's normally me. I'm that guy. I love. So there you are with your cell phone here, your wallet here, your car keys here. And then I come up behind you and I hang you over the pool like this and you, sh and you shout out, Hosanna, save me is what you do. Like, oh, save me from thing. Or, or actually to make it a bit more serious, imagine um, as a kid, you, you're playing on a bridge over a river like this and you don't know how to swim and you're, you're messing around and mom says, don't do that, don't do that. And you do it anyway because you're a naughty boy and you fall into the river like this and you can't swim and you begin to drown. And so you shout out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save me, please. But that word, that was its original meaning, began, began to shift over time for the Jews. And John Piper explains how that changed. And so he says this um, in one of his books. He says, the meaning changed over the years. In the psalm, Psalm 118, it was immediately followed by the exclamation, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The cry for help, um, Hoshiana, was answered almost before it came out of the psalmist's mouth. And over the centuries, the phrase Hoshiana stopped being a cry for help in the ordinary language of the Jews. Instead, it became a shout of hope and exaltation. It used to mean save, please, but gradually it came to mean salvation, salvation, salvation has come. And so as we declare it uh, this morning, our, our declaration is a, is a declaration of exaltation, that the one who saves us has come. That's what we're declaring as Hosanna. But for the uh, and so if we go back to the analogy of the kid that's fallen in the water, here you are drowning, shouting the, in the old Hebrew word, um, Hosanna, Hosanna would save me. But the new meaning, it's actually when your father dives in and he's swimming towards you and he's just grabbed you as you're about to go under and then you come out the water and you shout, Hosanna. See, I have been saved. The one who's, who's come to save me has arrived like this. And so for the Jewish people, when they declared this, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. For them, this was a coronation. They were saying that Jesus is the Messiah who was sent by God that's going to save us. He's the deliverer king of Israel. Remember the kind of deliverer they wanted. They wanted someone that would throw off the shackles of Rome and bring them back to the days of the glory of the kingdom they had before. And so it was a coronation. They were making Jesus king. But as John MacArthur says, this was a false coronation because Jesus had come to save them, but not the way Israel wanted to be saved. And that's so important. Um, there's this uh, um, graffiti I've spoken to you guys about before on Murrabia Road. Who of you drive here on Murrabia on the way here in, in the mornings? Any of you drive on that road on the way in? I don't know how else you get here if you don't drive here on Murrabia. Like, is there another way to get to this building? You've got to tell me because... I find that amazing. The first media saw there were three people that drive on Marabia to get you. Anyway, all of you that don't know that road that you drive on, that's called Marabia, okay, just so you know. And uh, on the left-hand side, there's this warehouse, and as I've mentioned many times before, there's this graffiti on the warehouse. It's been there since we moved into this warehouse like six or seven years ago. That's pretty crazy. 
And on the wall, it says this, salivating for some kind of salvation. You see, there is a hunger in mankind for salvation. There's a desire to be whatever phrase they would use. Take this guilt away. Give me some sense of meaning. Give me some sense of hope. What happens when I die? There's something that needs to be satisfied. But Jesus comes to satisfy what we need or what we think we need, which will come up now. And those in the crowd that hadn't, be, hadn't been swept by the euphoria of the moment um, could see there was something wrong here. They could see the contradictions. The crowd um, had gathered because they were amazed by what he had done with Lazarus. Clearly, there was, this man was something out of the ordinary. This wasn't just some preacher, some prophet. This was an extraordinary man. And obviously, some had come to salvation at the time um, around, uh, as we read in John 12, the first part there, when they had seen uh, Lazarus alive again. Um, and they were a part of that crowd. But there were many in the crowd that were not believers. And even some that were believers were still, the, the Jesus that they were looking for was the earthly deliverer. And we, we know this is probably likely because even in, in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, he spent 40 days teaching the disciples about, um, uh, about the kingdom of God, etc., etc. And then in verse 6, Jesus must be like, oh, like, what is going on with these guys? I don't know how to get the message through to them. He's just about to be ascended, and still they're saying to him. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this going to be the moment when we throw off the shackles of the, of the Romans? Is this going to be the moment when we become this great earthly nation that, uh, that we, we've kept our hope and our faith for? And of course, many of those that were in the crowd that day that were shouting out Hosanna saw Jesus this way. But they would be disappointed and they should have seen it. Jesus was coming into the city of David and he was being hailed as a king, but he was riding on a donkey. Imagine this. Here he comes, not, not on a, a, a war horse with a saddle, but a donkey with cloaks put over it. He was being hailed as king, but by children and by commoners, the, the influential and the powerful and the rich seem to have stayed away. If you think about it, there must have been some of those Roman soldiers there that day that would have, would have um, experienced in the past the kind of triumphal entries that took place in the city of Rome when the, when the generals returned from their battles and the Caesars returned with victory. And what they would have seen would have been the spoils of the victories paraded before these generals in the streets. First would have come the defeated kings and their commanders leading the ways, often with, a, with a, a ring through their nose and being dragged through the streets like this and humiliated um, before the crowds. Then the plunder would have been on display, elephants and lions and treasures brought through the streets and the soldiers would have marched with their uniforms and their, and their spears like this as they marched through and the crowd began to increase in their, in their adulation and their, and their cheering. And then finally, the victorious general would have ridden in on the finest of chariots pulled by a team of horses ahead of him. And Rome would have vibrated with the shouts of the people praising Caesar and the Roman gods. I wonder what they thought of this procession. This man looking like a nobody, riding on a donkey, coming into town as the common people praised him. They probably laughed at him. And that reality began to sink into the minds and the hearts of those that had shouted Hosanna. I don't know if it happened that night. Man, that wasn't quite what I expected. Or maybe it was the next morning. But certainly there was, there was a, an acute sense of disappointment and disillusionment by the end of the week 
because many of those that had shouted Hosanna on the Sunday shouted crucify him, crucify him on the Friday. And that's my last point, the cries of crucifixion. The lesson for us as we approach Good Friday and Easter Sunday is that when our desire is selfish, when we approach God to have our needs met or seek salvation on our terms, we will be disappointed. See, selfish desire seeks gratification, and it seeks it now. And if it can't, if it, it, it won't wait for it. If it's possible, it will take it for itself. And soon what is professed as love will be revealed for what it truly is, which is simply lust. John MacArthur warns us when he says this, Excitement over Jesus that stops short of worshiping Him as King over all quickly fades away. Wow. Sad, Sad said this as he, he started the meeting this morning. He says, as much as I love the excitement, what I want is the encounters. See, it's easy to be excited in certain environments, isn't it? When the, when the, the band and these musicians are as good as our musicians are, it's easy for them to stir us up. Even if you don't love Jesus, you can come in here and you have to appreciate the fact that something pretty special is going on here. The lights are dimmed. The smoke machine's going. Now, we don't have a smoke machine, but but maybe we need to get one to get the excitement levels up. Who knows? Um, people are dancing and shouting. But John MacArthur warns us that excitement over Jesus, that stops short of worshiping Him, not just worshiping Him, but worshiping Him as King over all, over all of your finances, all of your dreams, all of your relationships, all of your hurts, all of your pains, all quickly fades away. In fact, it turns to hate as quickly as Hosanna's turn to crucify. And maybe you've seen this. I have with people. They, they say like, I've, I've given, a friend of mine, I remember saying, I gave Jesus a try, but it didn't work out. I'm, he's not interested anymore. Like he's, he's, he's just turned to complete disinterest. And you, don't, you don't give Jesus a try. You don't, like you either, we either come to him in salvation, fully trusting him, or we don't. You don't go like, I'm gonna, I'll see how it works out. Then you haven't given your, then you, then you can't know how it works out because there's only one way to put our faith in Jesus Christ, and that is completely. And I know that seems, gee, that seems crazy. It, it, it is crazy, actually. It's just like bungee jumping. You can't half bungee jump. You can't go, well, you've got the rope tied to you, and you kind of go, okay, there, I've, I've half bungee jumped. That's like, is that enough? No, no, you either bungee jump or you don't. You have to be falling to be bungee jumping. And we have, you, you can't try Jesus. Like, I want to just give him a, put a foot into faith like this and see what it looks like. You don't know what it looks like until you come to Him in complete surrender. Whenever we come to God looking for a Savior on our own terms, the way we want it, um, we find that, uh, that we, we're going to be disappointed. In 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5, it says, Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. It's one of my, like, I don't know, I mean, I think there are regrets in heaven. I think there must be because the Bible says that there's tears in heaven, even though Eric Clapton says there's no tears in heaven. One day every tear will be cried. But John was in heaven and he wept in the book of Revelation. So there's tears in heaven. I think there will be regret for us when we get to heaven one day of things that we could have done for Jesus that we didn't do. The tears will be wiped away and it'll be an eternity of bliss. But I think there will be a, a time as we stand before the throne of Christ, the judgment seat, where we will go, 
Why didn't I? Why couldn't I? I should have done this thing. I, why did I hold on to that money so tightly when I could have opened my hands? Why did I hold on to my time so tightly? Why did I hold on to the, the hurts and the offenses so much when I could have just let that stuff go now that I see him, you know? And um, one of my regrets in heaven before God would be if you sat here in church on a Sunday, shouted Hosanna, hallelujah, amen, but never knew Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That anybody would come to me after the meeting and say, Rob, that was a really good preaching by, what you, by that you mean an entertaining preach, um, but, it, but it didn't transform, open your heart up and create room for Jesus to come in and be Lord of all, then that would be a great regret for me. And I know, I know, because I've, I've met those people. I remember somebody coming to me the one time, he'd been in our church for a long time, and he said to me, I'm leaving my wife. And I said to him, I said, I didn't say, my, honestly, my first response to him as he said that was, what about Jesus? That's what I said to him, what about Jesus? He said, no, I don't believe in him. I said, but you've been in church for years. You've raised your hands. I, I've seen you during worship. He said, I never believed. I did it for my wife. That's a deep, deep sense of regret in my heart. And so Paul says, test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I want to finish with this tragic story in the Old Testament of Amnon and Tamar. And uh, maybe you've read the story. It's one of the, for me, one of the most tragic stories of the Old Testament. And in it, um, Am, what, what the Bible tells in, in 2 Samuel 13, I think it is. Yeah. He says that uh, this... Um, Amnon falls in love, he's one of David's sons, falls in love with Tamar, his half-sister. And he falls completely in love. Look what it says in verse 1 and 2. Now David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And Amnon, her half-brother, fell desperately in love with her. And he became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. Sounds like Sean Mendes. He sings this. <laughs> no, no, I'm telling you it does. When I meet that kid one day, he's getting a slap. He sings... He sings one of these songs, and he says, in the song he sings, I love you so much, and now you won't have sex with me. I'm like, I'm going to have a brain hemorrhage or something, he says. I don't know what the words of the song are. That's basically what he's saying. I love you so much. I care for you so deeply. Women, do not fall for the stupid lines that guys give you to try and get you to have sex with them before they are married to you. Just kick them in the... (laughs) That's another story entirely. Focus. She was a virgin, and Amnon thought he could never have her. And tragically, what happens is Amnon's got this dodgy friend, and he says to him, put this plan into action, and he does, and he gets alone with Tamar, and he rapes her. And it's at this point that we see into the heart of mankind. By mankind, I mean men and women. In verse 15, it says, Then suddenly Amnon's love turned to hate. Phew. And he hated her even more than he had loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. And the terrible parallel with the, the, the triumphant entry that I've been speaking about is that when we cry Hosanna for, to receive the deliverer on our terms, to receive salvation on our terms, it's not real worship, and it, it's actually, as Mark John MacArthur says, a, a, a false coronation. When it turns out that he's not going to bring the political deliverance that they wanted, their love, turned to hate, and it shows that it wasn't love in the first place. When we come to Jesus on our terms, eventually for the the unbeliever, it'll turn, the seeker, it'll turn to hate, 
And for the believer, it turns to anger to God. I cannot tell you how many people that have come to me and said, I'm angry with God. I'm, I'm so angry about this. And, and look, I want to be that sympathetic, empathetic counselor to you when you come speak to me about that. And, but maybe it's a good idea to go speak to Saj about it if you're angry with God. Because friends, I don't know how you get angry with God if you have truly acknowledged Him as Lord over all. How do we do it? Once we recognize that God is perfect in His love and perfect in His justice, there is nothing that we face, no hardship or difficulty or surrender or sacrifice or anything. And I'm not saying this lightly. This is, I know what this means. I, I was praying in the park that, uh, today or the other day, I can't remember, and I was, and I was talk, thinking about this thing about, I've been reading through Revelation, so it was this morning actually, reading through Revelation and you know, Jesus saying, stay firm, keep going. And even, if, even if death comes or you're thrown in prison or this thing happens or everything's confiscated, stay steadfast. And I'm thinking, God, I don't want to go to prison. I don't want to have everything confiscated. I don't want to die like this. It's not, it's not something where, like, please let me do this thing. I understand that it's a real, real scenario. Um, and some of you have gone through those scenarios. Some of you are in the midst of them. But God is the author of peace and joy in your life, not of that in your life. And so we've got to come to this place where we, 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 we don't allow our excitement to stop short of complete worship of Jesus Christ as King. Friends, we don't need a human deliverer. We don't need happiness. We want happiness. And I'm not saying happiness is not good for us. I'm just saying what we need on this earth is not happiness. What we need is not a good marriage or a marriage partner or kids or help with our kids or our homes or cars or whatever it is. What we need, the thing that we need, and the thing that only Jesus can give to us is a path home, a way to get back to the Father. In Philippians 2, verse 9 and 11, in that passage that we're um, about to get to in our series, we see um, actually the heavenly coronation of Jesus. It says, God elevated or exalted Him to the place of highest honor and gave Him the name above all names. You see, even though that coronation had been a false coronation it was the precursor to the true coronation jesus truly is the king of kings and the lord of lords and one day friends jesus will return and he won't return this time on a donkey but on a white horse Can you do me for a favor for a moment if you mind just closing your eyes i want to read a passage of scripture over you revelation 19 Verses 11 to 16. But our King Jesus. Then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. His rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like the flames, were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. His name was written on him that no one understood except himself. And he wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. And from his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice flowing from a winepress. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. When that day comes, friends, when the true triumphal entry takes place, 
there'll be no more opportunities for us to change our allegiance. This life, and this life only, can we choose Jesus.